And on the B2B side, it's very much about that sales cycle from creating, investing and creating those opportunities to closing new business and then hand off to the customer success team for both deployment and growing those accounts and that NRR for, for years to come. In the world of business finance, things change fast. Welcome to the Leaders of Modern Finance, a show where today's finance innovators discuss what the future holds. Learn from experts in the field as they explore emerging finance trends, insights, and more. This episode is brought to you by Stamply, the leading account payable automation platform. With Stamply, collaborate easily and efficiently with invoice approvers, vendors, and anyone involved with purchases. This helps you quickly resolve issues and questions, resulting in 5x faster approvals. Contact us to see why users love Stamply and schedule a demo at stamply.com. Thank you for joining us today on the Leaders of Modern Finance podcast. My name is Ben Murray, and I'd like to welcome David Lapter, CFO of Dashlane. Great to have you here. So for having me. Yeah. So let's start off. Tell us a little bit about yourself and Dashlane. As you said, I'm the CFO here at Dashlane. I've been here for about six and a half years, which is a long time in, in, in venture tech space. It's the fifth startup that I've been with. So you could say about 20 years ago, got bitten by the the startup mosquito and, and have not been able to escape. It's kind of my sweet spot, but I started in consulting and then venture capital. Ultimately made it to this and, you know, along the way had slightly different job scopes from, you know, one startup to another at different stages and different areas. Dashlane is a password manager at, at heart. So for anybody out there who's fed up with managing passwords and trying to have different passwords everywhere and sharing passwords, God forbid, and sharing a password that you have reused in a bunch of places and you're starting to get not secure and all these little problems that you start really coming up with when it comes to password management. The biggest one is that every time you want to log into something, you have to open that spreadsheet or figure out your mental algorithm for figuring out what that password was. And we just take all of that time wastage away. So that's ultimately what Dashlane does. And over time, we've also added other things that we can that you can store within Dashlane that Dashlane will auto-populate for you as you go through the web through your digital experience. Yeah, that's great. And I have no affiliation with Dashlane, but I'm a user, a big fan of the product. So yeah, it's been great for years. That's great. So let's talk shop first. You know, we'll yeah. go through some of these questions. First. Tell us a little bit about the stage size of Dashlane, because we'd like to hear about your team structure, team size, what departments you manage, but what can yeah. you tell us a little bit about Dashlane just to get a feel for the magnitude size of the company? Yeah, no, of course. So Dashlane historically was founded by three entrepreneurs like late in 2009. So the company's been going for a while. It was started in France and quickly after we raised our Series A, expanded into the U.S., and that's really our headquarters now, but we have about 350 employees around the world. And you could say that's split about 15% in Lisbon, and the rest is about 50-50 between Paris and New York. And then in terms of size, unfortunately, we don't share the overall revenue level. I'm sure I'm not the first CFO to tell you that. So tell us a little bit about your team structure. You're the CFO. So what departments report up through you? Yeah, at the moment, it, it's really three. Mm -hmm. Keeping it simple, my team's only 13 people, so lean okay. and mean. And it's, you know, all the FP&A side, the accounting side, and then legal as well. And we also have, um, you know, some companies would have, let's say, HR falling into the mm -hmm. CFO. You know, we brought on a chief people officer mm -hmm. 
a long time ago, about I think a little over four years ago. And you know, so that team reports uh, into her. And if you've ever had a, gr- it, it was through that experience that I realized what a great people organization could mean for the company. And so that's a different arm of the CEO, if you will. Okay. And what's so team size of 13 and rough split, say accounting, FPA, and legal. And do you actually have yeah. legal in house staff or is that outsourced? Yeah. So I'd say, you, you know, having a great lawyer by your side when you get to our size or even a few years earlier is a great weight off the CFO's shoulders. I've always had legal responsibilities in companies, but way too often, you know, I was like acting like a lawyer because I don't have a law degree. They're reviewing contracts. But when you realize that these contracts are piling up and you can't read fast enough, that's when you know you need some help. And, you know, because CFOs are generally going to be a little bit avarice, they're going to not want to pay an outside firm their rates. So I was lucky, you know, we hired Davison about a little over three years ago, and it's been a tremendous journey. That's another area I, I couldn't recommend more highly to have a good in-house lawyer. But so he's on his own, by the way, to get yeah. back to your question. And then the rest of my team is just about 50-50. You know, we have a controller with a team of four, soon to be five. And we just brought on a new director of FPNA who has a team of three, soon to be four. So that's you know, kind of how, how we split. Okay, that's perfect. Yeah, for all the CFOs in the audience, you know, you start out doing legal, right? Reviewing contracts, <laughs> negotiating with vendors, you know, so and then, yeah, that's a nice, nice transition. So, yeah. okay, so about one legal person, huge lift off of your shoulders, and then about 50 50 between the county and FPA with a controller and the director of FPA. So that's perfect. That's right. So, with FPA transitioning into, I'm sure they're crunching a lot of numbers, calculating metrics, putting out the latest forecasts. So what numbers are important to your company, to your management team, and that you also report to your board? Yeah. And I would say it's not only like to whom we report the numbers because there are different degrees. It's also the cadence of that reporting, weekly, monthly, quarterly, and then, you know, whenever we have board meetings. So there are differences in the numbers I'll share or the metrics I'll share across, uh, you know, the cadence by which we, you know, we report them, but they really fall into, let's say, four buckets. The first is what I would consider pretty traditional SaaS metrics. They're your ARR, your ARR growth. The ones that are the most dear to me are NRR and what we call ARR per sub or ACV on the B2B Uh side. One thing, by the way, that I didn't mention earlier, I should have you know Dashlane as a consumer, uh-huh. I believe, but we also have a flourishing. In fact, one of the biggest drivers of our business today is our B2B side of our business. So we work with 20,000 and more companies around the world and empower them and all their employees with our password manager solution. And so why I say that is we'll look at both ARR per sub at the individual user level and on the B2B side, it's our average you know, annual contract value. So those that and why I said NRR, it's because we're very lucky. We're in one of those areas where once people subscribe, like you, like me, frankly, I couldn't imagine life without it. But it's very hard to give this up because the yeah. amount of time you save and peace of mind you have really is immeasurable until the day you actually start using. Then you really understand why. And so NRR for us has been super strong. And on the consumer side, it's it's the parallel. There's just the retention rate of our ARR from our consumer business is a tremendous force. And so we, we follow that obsessively. 
unit economics like payback and CLTV to CAC, obviously we keep close eye on. And what I would consider kind of like the sister of that or a cousin at least is, and we here you get into operational strategy, it's your efficiency score or your magic ratio, your magic number, and to see really the relationship between how much we're investing in sales and marketing and the upside that we're getting for it. And those things have obviously very different uh, nuances and dynamics, whether it's on the consumer or on the business side, yeah, on the B2B side. Mm -hmm. When we get to funnel, I mean, we have to, as a subscription business, we have to follow the funnel and they're very different funnels between B2B and B2C. So I won't bore you with, you know, all the individual yeah. steps along the metrics, but what I will say is the biggest one that we follow very obsessively, especially on the B2B side is adoption. And I find that's one of the big differentiators for us as a player in our space. There are surely alternatives that you can look at and they're formidable uh, competitors. But for me, you know, uh, addressing the needs of businesses, not with, hey, you know, buy, you know, seats for all of your employees, but with a caveat, buy seats for all of your employees and let's work together to make sure they all actually use it both for their benefit and for your business efficiencies and security. And so we do keep a close eye on that adoption rate. It's not just how many seats you sell. It's how many seats are actually being utilized on an active basis, because that also turns right back around to NRR and just maintaining uh -huh. a growing, thriving installed base of revenue. Yeah. And then finally, the, your usual financial metrics. I mean, you know them all, burn rate, you know, gross margin, things like that. Yeah, interesting. And back to adoption, and you measure adoption in the form of what active users, monthly active users or daily active users. Is that how when you think about adoption, that's what you're thinking about? Yeah, I mean, we probably look at it more from a, a, a from a, a monthly active user, mm -hmm. but I can tell you that the ratio, and this is more focused on B2C, but there's no reason it should be different on B2B. The D DAU to MAU is, has always been very high in our business. Okay. And so we don't consider it one and done as long as somebody does one thing a month. It's that building of the relationship. Mm -hmm. So really interesting. So you've got the key SaaS metrics. You really like ACV and NRR. And for those not in SaaS or new to SaaS, that's net revenue retention. So the, reten the revenue we retain from our existing customer base plus any expansion. That's right. uh, then operational metrics, funnel engagement metrics, which we know as a SAS or a CFO, we've got to know, yeah, that lead pipeline, the opportunity pipeline, how that's working and flowing into revenue. And then of course, your common financial measures, gross margins, et cetera. Now, one quick question on all this, the metrics and the data here, yeah. you have very distinct markets. So B2C and B2B. So I'm guessing you're not looking at these metrics in aggregate. You know, how many layers of metrics do you calculate? Is it just B2B or is it segments of B2B and the same thing for B2C? That's a great question. So we, when it comes to overall financial metrics, whether it's gross margin, whether it's burn, obviously we look at the business in aggregate, but we try as much as we can at the very least to what I'd consider like, where is your contribution margin? And people will define that very differently. At the very least, you can go down to the uh, a margin that includes net of all sales and marketing. But we can try on the R&D side, and we have historically to see how much B2B versus B2C actually contribute. What we have in our business, having been in B2C historically, like you know, for more than 10 years, is a cash cow on the B2C side of our business. And we're able to use some of the proceeds of that and reinvest them into the thriving business that we have in B2B. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. And you mentioned one thing, Cadence, and that question comes up a lot. 
you know, the cadence of reporting, you know, so tell me a little bit about that. Like your management team, do they get once a month reports? Are you talking to your board every quarter or once a month? You know, tell us a little bit about that financial reporting cadence. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll start with the things that are less frequent. Mm -hmm. You know, we have board meetings once a quarter. We have what we call QBRs, quarterly business reviews that we do internally, also looking at it quarterly in arrears. Very often the QBRs and the boards are the same week or very close to one another because we're looking at you know, very similar material. And that will go way beyond, obviously, finance and KPIs. It's it, you know sales and marketing participates. We have a customer advocacy team and they participate very heavily in that part of in, in, in that discussion. And so we're looking at things that are both qualitative and quantitative on a monthly basis. And then also folded into the QBRs is what we call a, a monthly operating meeting. And that's when we go in depth into many of the metrics, which I mentioned to you just now. And I would say they're actually a little less financial and in terms of what does the PNL tell us and what the burn rate is, and much more about the efficiencies of our two funnels, B2B and B2C. You know, how much are we pouring gas into the tank? How many accounts are being created? When are people subscribing? The beauty of a freemium product, by the way, which is our B2C business, is you can have people who have used Dashlane for two years. To, uh, five years who for the first time subscribe because something has happened in their lives and they want the benefit of our premium service. So we have this never ending conversion curve, if you will, on the consumer side. And so we look at lifetime value very seriously, as you can imagine. And on the B2B side, it's very much about you know that, that sales cycle from creating, investing and creating those opportunities to closing new business and then hand off to the customer success team for both deployment and growing those accounts and that NRR for, for years to come. That's great. And we've got a lot of finance kind of career journey questions to dive into, but real quickly, tell us a little yeah. bit about your tech stack within your finance and accounting team. Yeah, I'll say that's the one area which is probably overly simple, you know, for the company, for the scale of company we are. But, you know, we have NetSuite. We moved from QuickBooks to NetSuite finally a couple of years ago. We've deployed Avalara to handle all of our sales tax and increasingly VAT obligations in Europe. Then, you know, for anything around data, and I'm obsessed about data, the company has always been, you know, Tableau is really the front end that we refer to mostly together with the help of our analysts. You know, we have the tools that help our jobs as accountants as, and as financiers like Expensify and Bill.com, Trinet, Bamboo HR, Carta from a cap table mm -hmm. perspective. And then there is one little unknown tool, which I have to say I had never heard of until I joined Dashlane. It's a German company that's called ThinkCell. And if you haven't heard of ThinkCell, they are an add-on to PowerPoint connecting to Excel and they just allow you, it was built by consultants with their that mentality in mind for making charting easy. And having done this for six years, I would never use PowerPoint without ThinkSell again. <laughs> well, that's, yeah, I love that little tip there, trick for that integration. And yeah. then you mentioned kind of a new frontier coming up in FBNA. any sort of forecasting, budgeting, CPM solutions? Yeah, that's the reason why I'd say we're maybe a B, C, B, a grade or a C mm -hmm. on the tech stack. It's I'd really expect, especially bringing on a new director of FPNA, who literally is, is starting next week, that sometime in the next 18 months, I don't I think it's probably a bit too late to start the process towards mm -hmm. having a new FPNA tool 
by the end of this year for 2023. But by the end of next year, I'd really like us to have shifted to something outside of Excel. Right now, it's very, you know, old school, get your hands dirty, interlinked spreadsheets that are our FP&A system. Yeah, yeah, sounds familiar. Everybody starts there and then, yeah, moves on. So, exactly. So let's talk about your journey in finance because really, you know, some great experience, unique journey, advisor, investor, of course, the CFO track. But let's talk about mm. the current climate right now because mm. everybody's talking about valuations. Where are valuations going for SaaS and tech? And then you see all this stuff about time to preserve cash, you know, yeah. don't raise for another 18 to 24 months. And you right. have a lot of experience on that advisor investor front. So I'd love to hear, you know, any advice or what you're thinking about as a CFO and advisor investor, you know, for this current climate. Yeah. Well, I'll answer in a couple of ways. And if I don't cover off all the bases, by all means, you know, let me know. I've had the fortune of investing in a few very early stage companies. I was talking to the CEO of one of them recently, talking about a potential new round. And I urged the CEO to not raise too much and, and that it was okay, that it was at a lower valuation than they had expected six months ago. In fact, I would go be maybe contrarian and say, it's partly a good thing that the market has, the temperatures have cooled off a little bit, especially in terms of the education and ups and downs in the journey of a founder raising money, raising the next round, and so on and so forth. Unfortunately, I think if you go back uh, the last couple of years, especially in 2021, any new founders who raised, if you, if you don't mind my saying so, obscene amounts of money before they even knew what to do with it at valuations that should not have existed, there, there are going to be some regrets. There are going to be down rounds coming down the pipe the next time they need that money. Their burn rates are probably higher than they, they would wish, and it, they get out of control. And so the one piece of advice I do give not only this founder, but just I listen to my own advice as well, is just make sure you earn your way there gradually. And I've learned that lesson the hard way. You know, I, I've had the fortune of being part of, you know, four companies before Dashlane. And you take lessons away from, you know, your mistakes and the mistakes of others. And, you know, one of the big ones is to lean in too far over your skis. Just make sure you walk away with a lesson from that. And in moments like this, you especially want to make sure to your point, 18, 24 months, that's really where we want to make sure we're not backed into a corner. That's the thing. And I would call it the value of optionality. That's the kind of the theme that comes up in many of my conversations recently. Optionality, not only about the future of the company, but optionality in terms of the future of the capital structure and basically the exit optionality. If you are a small founder and you've raised $5 million at the last round of 20, well, the day somebody is super interested in your company and offers you 50 or 70, you could say, hey, that's a real possibility for us. It's a decent multiple exit. I'm not saying it's a home run, but it's a good exit. It's maybe the right way for a future with the, for the company. You actually can consider it. But if you've raised 50 at 200, 300 million, and your metrics two years later, when you're starting to think, okay, I might need more cash, don't justify a $50 million valuation, you really have a problem. So you have no more options, hence the point optionality. 
Yeah, no, that's great. Great advice. So it sounds like, yeah, it's maybe good. You know, in your opinion, things are cooling off a bit. Down rounds may be coming, but optionality key, right? Because probably some SaaS companies feeling that pinch, high cash burn where optionality has run out, you know? Exactly, exactly. So next, getting into your career journey, because really interesting, again, mentioned this before, advisor, investor, now CFO, a lot of CFO positions, not only SaaS, but look like, you know, self-storage, fab.com, you know, so a lot of great experiences, not just in SaaS. So tell us about that journey and, you know, were there accidental pivot points or decision points where like, hey, I want to jump from an advisor into that finance function. So tell us a little bit about that journey. Yeah. Now, as I said earlier, like I started in consulting and then went on to venture capital. Venture capital quenched my thirst, at least initial thirst for technology. It got me much closer to that. In, in consulting, it was a generalist strategy firm. Uh, but all along the way, I felt it, it was weird. I couldn't put it in these terms then, but I do now, which is I felt like I was on the wrong side of the table. And it's nothing wrong about those two industries, but it, I felt like I needed to get my hands more dirty, more involved in operations, in, deci- in making decisions and so on and so forth. And so uh, fortunately, step two led to step three, You know, an amazing entrepreneur that we had invested in when I was in venture capital reached out to me and asked me if I wanted to, you know, be his CFO. And that's history now. But that was really the beginning of that ter- that turning point for me, moving to the other side of the table, right in, into venture. I spent the first two companies, both in Europe and the US, that were B2B ASPs <laughs> or SaaS companies, yep, if you yep. will, but more big AACV more like license maintenance kind mm-hmm. of models, but that's what that's what I did. The first two steps had two decent exits with both of those companies, and those exits, by the way, gave those companies the much needed additional boost and exposure they needed to flourish. And then came along an opportunity to join Fab.com, and as you know, Fab.com, we can go into long discussions about that company, but learned a lot of lessons from that. This was a company where I joined. That was 45 people. And within two, two and a half years, we were almost 700. We had a number of M&A transactions, raised a, a tremendous amount of money and, and learned a lot of lessons in terms of what we did right and what we did wrong. And I carried those lessons with me to this very day. And from there, you know, and, and by the way, I, what I loved about Fab, and it was the first exposure for me, was the consumer side of tech technology business. And so I kind of always wanted to have some of that magic with me as I went to my future jobs. And so MakeSpace, which is you know kind of self-storage made easy, you leveraging the internet, MakeSpace brought me just that. It was more of a consumer service, but it was a recurring subscription service. So it brought back the benefits of the SaaS model. And I was there for a time until an opportunity came at Dashlane, and that was now more than six years ago. Dashlane's a Franco-American company. As you may have picked up a small accent in my voice, I was born in Belgium, so I speak French and English. I was kind of made for this, and it's been a tremendous ride. I, I wouldn't be here six plus years later if it wasn't. Yeah, that's great. That's quite the journey. For those in the audience right now who may be in a consulting or VC role, any advice or surprises from moving to that side of the desk to now the other side of the desk? Well, two, don't undervalue the training that VC or and or consulting 
you know, brings, and I would say bankers, I have CFO friends, tremendously successful CFOs who have a banking background. There's a lot you learned there as well. Accounting. I think you, you started in accounting, right, Ben? Uh, well, kind of both like FP&A and then got my CPA and accounting and doing both sides. So, yeah. R- right. So, and I think accountants also bring, you know, a, a great knowledge base going into a, a venture. For me on the consulting side, it was how to do research and analysis. You know, when you're 22 years old, you really don't know how to optimize your time and really get down to, you know, the kind of outcomes that you're really looking for. Things can take you a lot longer if you don't know what you're doing. And then venture, I would say, has been a, a wonderful asset to me. And hopefully are the investors that have bet on the companies I've been with and myself and uh, the management teams I've been with in that I kind of know the language they speak, if you will, and how to focus on the things that are important to them. And above all, it's kind of a a thing I always try and preach to my team. It's always be like 72 hours away from a data room. You never know when you're going to need to do this for one reason or another, a partnership, M&A, fundraising. So, you know, being able to have been a a, 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 a VC allows me to have, you know, that perspective of what's what what needs to go in there right away, mm-hmm. you know, what are they interested yep. in? Yeah, so that's a great tra- transition to the next question, a little advice for consulting VC folks. But what about the finance and accounting leaders, you know, they could be early stage experienced CFOs. What are some of those big lessons learned over your career in all those the different roles? Yeah, look, I mean, they, they, they've been broad and uh, and, and I would say I, I probably I'll, I'll list out three or four and I'll, mm-hmm. I'll give you a little explanation of why. But first, and it may seem a bit corny, but, you know, you can't please everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's whether internally or externally, you know, I have been at companies where we learned the hard way and a very economically inefficient way where we suddenly looked at a competitor and we said, okay, we got to change our entire business model because they do this better than we do, or because a few clients are complaining. Obviously, you want customers to be happy, but you cannot be a different person. And I'm saying person as in your company cannot mm-hmm. suddenly shift gears entirely just to address a problem like that. And so I feel it's not to say it's not important to try and please as many constituents be they employees or customers as you can, but be careful not to swerve too far off gear, you know, and suddenly you find yourself, oh my God, I can't recognize myself as a company, right? We've completely turned our business model upside down. Another one is, I don't know if you read Sun Tzu or The Art of War. It's a famous like business and strategy book. It's got all these military connotations, but ultimately don't open yourself up on too many fronts, you know, especially in times like, you know, we were talking about the macroeconomic climate, especially today, you know, stay true to the places where you know you have a good chance at winning that battle. Don't go into a battle you can't win. And when I look at, you know, both companies that I followed as well as, you know, some that I've been at, you know, I can point to those moments when, you know, we spread ourselves too thin and then you suddenly are losing on all fronts. You definitely don't want that. The other ones, we, we start to, to get into a little bit more 
nuanced, but one, raise debt when you don't need it. Many people still don't understand that. I mean, I'm sure your CFO listeners will obviously appreciate that. That's when you put debt facilities together. You don't do that when you can't get equity. You can't. You, you put those together so that you know when the clouds come rolling by and you have a good partner there, you have a partner also at a much lower cost of capital than equity. And then one thing that a CFO reminded me, a CEO reminded me about a year or two ago, always assume best intentions. It's very hard as human beings. We're emotional people. And sometimes we immediately have a mechanism where instinctively we want to be defensive about a certain position. It's so freeing to think about it as assume there are good intentions on all fronts. That opens up a nice dialogue because chances are everybody is right to a certain degree. And that's where you build bridges, you know? Yeah, no, that's great. So you can't please everyone. Don't open yourself <laughs> up to too many fronts. Stay true. Raise that when you don't need it. Yes, that value, that relationship <laughs> with your banker, really important. And then Super. don't assume, which I think all CFOs eventually learn, you know, what people are doing. Just don't assume that something happened. It's like, hey, take a moment, figure out their perspective first before you just assume that this is what they were trying to do or, or their perspective. So yeah. really important on the intangible side. There is one last one I have yep, to sure. say. I say this actually at every onboarding session, which I have every month with new employees that joined Ashlane. And it's, if you don't ask, you don't get, you know? And it's something very often people maybe are uncomfortable asking for things or trying to negotiate. Obviously, in my role, that's what I do. But it's amazing. Okay, you're not going to ask Delta. You're not going to call Delta and ask them to give you 10% off. Maybe I should, I don't know. But for most other things, don't be so afraid to ask. What's the worst thing that could happen? They'll say no. But I bet you in nine chances out of 10, they'll say yes to something, some concession. And so don't be afraid to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great advice, especially say if you're negotiating, say vendor concessions where you think, oh, they'll never give us a discount or a little leeway. Yeah, you never know, right? Until you ask. So yeah, great exactly. advice. Exactly, that's right. So as we wrap up here, final question, you know, so many kind of, you know, different roles within your career journey, pivot points, you know, so how do you define kind of what is great at this point in your career? And then also on the flip side, you know, I think it's also, you know, great advice, like when is it time to move on? You've had mm. a lot of different CFO roles, you know, so when is that time where it's like, hey, I'm not, is it like I'm not learning anything or things are stagnant? You know, so it's, I think that's also a great thing to consider. It's like, hey, when is that time to look for that new role as a CFO? Yeah, I'll answer the first part of your mm -hmm. question is about defining what grade is mm -hmm. in part in a self-reflecting way is you need to be on a journey to always being greater. And hopefully mm -hmm. you have self-awareness enough to know what are the two, three things you're missing to make you great. Where do you want to be? I've been very lucky. I've had tremendous mentors, both external and then, you know, CEOs I've reported into. In fact, J.D. Sherman, our current CEO who joined us about a year ago, he was the CFO of Akamai, was the president and COO at HubSpot. He's the first CEO I've had who has been a CFO in my career. So it's actually, he, you know, he's become a great mentor of mine of defining not this is what great is, but rather this is what you should be striving for, right? And so I would say for me, it's that. And the only way to do that and the only way to be great, I think you need to surround yourself with great people. 
You know, I talked about having a great lawyer by your side, head of FPNA controller. Here I'm talking specifically mm-hmm. in the CFO role. You really need to have a bench, right-hand people who you can count on, who have the same work ethic, loyalty, focus, ambition that you have, and they impart the same thing on their teams. So I think that in itself, you know, creates this virtuous circle, virtuous cycle where you yourself as a CFO can be great because you're not dragged into the weeds every time there is one issue or another, because they will be. And that's a good segue, actually, into the question of when do you know, you know, when you start getting that itch, when do you know it's time? The first thing about that is have patience. Uh, One big lesson I've learned along the way, and unfortunately, I see it more and more, is lack of patience. It takes time. There are bad days and good days, but there are also bad months and bad and, and good months. And so have enough patience to really take a step back and observe on a regular basis before you suddenly jump ship. Now, the one thing that has to be, I'd say, rooted in that decision of whether you want to stay or not is one, you know, do you enjoy the people you're working with? It's pretty basic. Do you find yourself almost without trying that you're selling what the company is selling? I find myself every day preaching Dashlane, not because I've drunk the Kool-Aid. I know I have, but it's because I fundamentally believe we're doing something great for this world, for companies and for people. You would know you use Dashlane. And so if you've got that itch almost instinctually, that's, I think, telling you something. And then finally, as a professional, as a CFO, do I believe in the direction, the direction and the, the opportunity here? And of the five companies that I've been with, no offense to the other four at all, I felt passionately about the long-term future of Dashlane since the day I arrived. I don't feel differently since. You know, we have a team that has tacked, to use the sales analogy, the sailing analogy. We've tacked along the way, but with the same goal and direction, you know, in mind. And for me, it's almost without question, I'm along for that ride. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and that is great advice. And sometimes it is hard to consume, especially early in your career is just that patience. And sometimes it just takes time and seat to experience, yeah. get that experience, you know, yeah. different perspectives, different leadership, different people that you're working with, and just absorb that. So you know, then how, you know, to react later on and how to be a leader and manager. So yeah, great advice. Yeah, there've um, been a couple of people I've been a mentor to, not uh, founders or companies I've invested in, but I've been a mentor to. And that always is a, a theme in our discussions. It's something I try and impart in my kids as well. Have the patience, take a step back, really assess honestly about what's going on. Don't make harsh emotional decisions. Like I have worked with many people who have the ones that are most regrettable who've left have done so emotionally and then they regret it, you know? So, yeah. 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 That's great. Great advice. So let's wrap up with a final question. And then actually, mm-hmm. I think we'll have a little special offer here at the end. But if you had, <laughs> if you have one piece of advice to give to modern finance leaders, what would it be? What I've seen time and time again, and we didn't talk about data. We talked about mm-hmm. tech stack, but we never yeah. really spoke about data over the last half hour or so. And this, pr- pr- protecting the single source of truth. And really looking at data from multiple angles. Don't look at data to tell you that, you know, you look pretty, you know, to use the analogy. It's like, don't just use that mirror. 
Look at every angle of the data. Be honest with yourself about what is going on with the business. Identify the areas that don't work. By the way, every business has problems. The grass is always greener syndrome. Everybody suffers from it. And I use that in your role as a CFO to give transparency to your executives and other stakeholders around what's going on and what they should be focusing to help them make decisions. So really protect that data stack. Never, don't skimp on it and don't, in, don't be the one investing too late in it. I think it's vital. Yeah, data now as CFOs, right? We're the data stewards, so really important. So that's great. Yeah. So David, really appreciate your time today, sharing your experience, your career journey. And I think you have one thing to wrap up with for the <laughs> listeners out there. And I think we will put this in the show notes as well, but as an offer mm-hmm. for the audience and the CFOs out there. Yeah, yeah. For your audience, you know, who've been kind enough to listen and who see the show notes, you know, uh, truly appreciate it. And I wouldn't be myself if I hadn't reached out to my growth team and asked them yeah. to put together a few codes. These are coupon codes. They give you 50% off a dash lane. And we have three different coupon codes. One, if you just like you, Ben, you know, have just a consumer version of Dashlane Premium, which is the full product suite. And that's simple, Dashlane Premium 50. And then if you want that, but for your whole family of up to, I think, five or six seats, it's Dashlane Family 50. So keeping it really, really obvious and simple. And then finally, if you use Dashlane Business 50, and this is quite a big, bold statement, is that it doesn't matter what size company you are. If you're using Dashlane Business 50, you would get 50% off your first year of Dashlane Business. We have a team offering and a business offering that is more like all the bells and whistles for the company side. And it doesn't matter how many seats you buy, we're going to honor that code. That's great. So make sure listeners take advantage of those discount codes, big discounts, either whether you're consumer or business. And then again, David, you know, thank you for sharing your experiences today. Really appreciate it. It's been an absolute pleasure, Ben. Thank you for having me. Thanks, David. Thank you for listening to the Leaders of Modern Finance podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review. You can see the show notes and all the resources mentioned in today's episode at stamply.com slash leaders of modern finance. Thank you for listening and be sure to subscribe for updates on future episodes. This episode is brought to you by Stamply, the most powerful way to process and pay invoices. Stamply is the only accounts payable automation software that centers communication on top of the invoice so that accounts payable collaborates better with approvers, vendors, and anyone involved in purchases to quickly resolve issues and questions, resulting in 5x faster approvals. Contact us to see why users love Stamply and schedule a demo at stamply.com.